We were talking about perceived value. We were talking about the idea that um, whenever you're talking to someone that's being interpreted, people value things in different ways. Um, you can communicate value in different ways and uh, perceive value, the value that something is then when perceives something to be, can be uh, much different than like the inherent value you think it has. Um I, it's a it's a very complicated topic in um, negotiation and networking and sales, and it's one that even applies to salary. Um, so we were talking about that. And yeah, I guess now that you bring it up like this, it it seems to be like at the moment the most relevant like concept in terms of open source, right? It's like the value of open source. I mean, in my mind, is like you know so high, but then what? what we're paying for it, which is nothing usually is not there at all. So like, how do we almost like, it's like at a, like even a cultural or systematic level. And then also individually when we're talking to people at companies. Yeah. And um, one way to communicate and influence perceived value is to, is, is for them to see what you're charging now and what you think your prices or worth are now. It's interesting because obviously money doesn't directly correlate to worth and value. It doesn't, but it's like one of those signals that can send a message to someone that like, for instance, if they find out you have like a massive dollar sign support agreement, they're immediately going to think like, wow, why was that signed? Obviously this company found that valuable if they were going to spend so much money and if they find out you're selling support agreements for a really low amount, they'll be like, oh, well, it, it'll be the opposite. They'll be like, oh, well, if they, if, if, they aren't, if they aren't selling this for a lot of money, maybe the corporation didn't find it that important. And that's the reason. Um, so obviously, we know that it can be also just be a matter of the open source maintainer needs more sales skills or like doesn't have a strong network. But that's always going to be a bias and something in people's heads and that influences perceived value. And I, I feel like I see this with um, even with my own experience with trying to raise money, I suppose. It's like the weird, it's like the more money that you have, the more money you can make. Um, uh, like when you see, like if you go to a Patreon or open collective page and you see that Babel is me or, or even my own Patreon, like say it only had a dollar, then like no one's going to want to donate to it. Even if they see that what I'm doing is valuable, um, or when they see that Babel has like 10,000 a year, it's like, well, that's like basically nothing. Um, so it's weird because you would think that means like, oh, they need the money. So I'm going to give them more. But in reality, it, it feels more like, when we're already or already successful, more people are willing to. Get. Yeah, and that's something that's commonly talked about in business um, for selling proprietary products as well. Is like this idea, and it's easier with proprietary products. It's easier because you get to keep more information close to your chest. With open source and with stuff like Patreon, you're putting all that information out there. When you're selling a proprietary product, you can be like, you don't have to lie, but you can like imply that you've got deals, even though you don't. And then that increases your perceived value. Um, doing it in open source is, is hard. It's very hard. And it's almost like if you're in that boat where you're only making a dollar a month on Patreon, if you... My advice would be to find a way 
to word your marketing that basically counteracts that. Like saying, this is brand new, would counteract that. People would be like, oh, you just opened it. Okay, that makes sense. Like you need something to like be like, no, I'm not just worth a dollar a month. I guess that reminds me of how whenever they do something new, you, you ask like your friends or all these people to like put money in so it looks like you already have a lot in the beginning. Yeah, even if you're saying like, um, this is brand new, you're right that that perceived value still takes a hit. And then another thing is actually um, Patreon lets you not show the amount. So uh, I think you can turn off like the dollar amount and even maybe the, the backer amount. So it's funny. It's like when you're not making a lot of love, maybe you should not put it there. And then when you feel like it's a, a good amount, quote unquote, then you should put it back. It makes it real tricky, though, because Patreon does have a very common option of showing the dollar amount. So if you don't show the dollar amount, people are going to wonder, why isn't the dollar amount shown? And if all these maintainers making a bunch of money are showing dollar amounts, they're like, oh, is it because you're not making money? And it would be cool if you could come up with a reason for not showing dollar amounts that wasn't correlated with not making money. Like maybe some of the contributors want to be confidential, like stuff like that to kind of raise the perceived value and not have the assumption be it's because you're not making enough. Because I, I know in other cases, people don't show them out because they're making too much. <laughs> but that's... Ah, uh, that's good then. That's good. I didn't realize that actually, because I see a lot of um, a lot of Patreons making a lot of money and they... Um, show it that's the other problem though is uh one problem of showing that you're making a lot is people can be like oh you have enough and that is where that is a problem that doesn't happen as much in business because you're still you have leverage there like you're selling a proprietary product they see that you're like rolling in dough you have a lot of money and they are but they aren't getting a certain benefit from you. They aren't getting a license. So you still have that leverage over them to be like, if you want a license, you can see I'm rolling in money. So obviously this license is going to be high. Like you got leverage with an open source library. You have to think about what your leverage is. And then if you show you're making a lot of money, it kind of shows that like, okay, whatever service or, or, extra thing you can provide them is going to be worth a lot. I mean, I, I've seen this with like more content creation, even though I guess open source is like that in a different way, uh, where like YouTube or Twitch, like live streaming, you know, I guess the top people, like say like Ninja, um, you have millions of subscribers or followers and people are donating just to like put a message on the stream for like a few dollars. It's like, I think people know that he's making like, half a million dollars a month, but then people are still giving him money. And they give him money because they're getting something. They're getting the message on the stream. And they know that he's making a lot of money, which means that for something to be worth his time, he has to, like, if he's providing something to you, he has to, you have to, we'll have to give him more. It's, yeah, it's a weird thing. It's it's an exchange of services. Um, and, in open source, you might not want that exchange to be your library, but you can do products around your library, like logos, marketing, um, consulting, contracts, services, support agreements. 
One thing to think about too is that um, I had a conversation with an open source maintainer who was really concerned about how all this biases them and like really wanted to go the nonprofit route. The nonprofit route is a legitimate route too. Yeah, I guess there aren't, I haven't, I don't know of a lot of examples of that other than through a foundation which has its own pros and cons too. And I guess there's the overhead of making a nonprofit versus like making an LLC or something. Yeah, I've never made a nonprofit. I would strongly, if you were thinking about going that route, I would strongly encourage people to talk to people who have run nonprofits. Um, whenever I've asked about it, it's always been the um, uh, the ability to even get nonprofit status has been a little bit of a struggle, and to my knowledge. So it's good to like be knowledgeable about what that process entails. And um, keep in mind that there are benefit corporate structures in the United States too, which is different from a regular corporation. It has a mission, and it, I believe it's easier to get approved than a nonprofit. Right. I think Kickstarter changed to be a benefit corporation, actually. I believe so. So that means like... If they aren't fulfilling whatever mission they have, like they get to be mission driven a little bit more. Um, yeah, we mentioned um, like people paying for services, and the code can't really be the thing that they're paying for because the whole point is that it's open. Then, yeah, at least we have to build something on top. So, um, and I guess that's like before it's like people will pay for your time or your code, whether you work at a company, so that's your salary. Or people will pay for features, but but then it's like that. I almost feel like that in itself isn't enough value for what you can provide. So it's like, what about your own knowledge or just access to you know the maintainer itself? So that's more of like a support hours kind of thing. And I think that scales a lot better than just writing some features because maybe the features don't you know mesh with the project or are too specific to the company, um, and you don't want to like. You want to work on things that can benefit everyone more generally. And then the sport hours thing, it's like that can be, it seems like a lot less time spent to get more, I guess, bang for your buck. Yeah. And one thing to think about too, is that it highly depends on the open source project, but some maintainers make a lot of money off of services agreements. So more similar to features request, but they're not adding features to the library. They're doing services related to their open source project that do help the open source project. Like for instance, services around integrating the product into the stack. And through doing that, they learn how to make the product better and make it easier to integrate and stuff, but they get to make their money that way. Um, So depending on what your open source project is, you can charge for services that aren't directly like adding open source code, but still kind of happily coexist with maintaining the library. Yeah, that makes sense. I I remember before I was feeling weird that like, it's like, I want to get paid to work on the code itself versus like simply maybe implementing something for another company because it doesn't benefit anyone else. But like kind of like what you said, getting the experience of integrating something in a company might actually help in a different way of like, oh, that gave me more ideas on how to make the project better. And working, you know, at a in a real setting with other engineers on how to whatever integrate or something could be beneficial. And but I, I think before I had this more black and white um, view on just like, oh, that's specifically for that company, even if it is for the project. Because my 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 um, thought was like, oh, I need, I just need the money to go 
directly to the code itself. It reminds me of actually issues that you can run into in a full-time job. Like when I worked for um, Unity working on particle system engine development. So it was basically like this tool that helped game creators make particle systems, like make fire and water and like cool flowy things in their games. I was so obsessed with like, I need to focus my efforts on researching like particle engines and researching particles and researching like this core tool. But then there was this other use of my time that could be sitting with users and seeing how they use the tool and doing work for them to help them like use the tool better. And that's not useless, you know, like, in fact, I probably should have spent way more time sitting with users and like helping them out. It's taking away from the core particle system development, but it's actually potentially more useful because I actually like, you know, if you build a tool in the dark, like, okay, like it's, you're, you're building a tool so that it gets used by others. And so interacting and doing services for the people who use your product can end up making your product better. Yeah, I guess it's just that assumption I had where it's like, it has to be like you created it or something like that. And it's like, no, we can expand that. And I think that's good because then you won't feel as bad about, it's like, it feels like you're making money on this other thing when it's not at all. And maybe it's not that different, like thinking more generally of, you know, engineers learning to do these the business skills where it's like that can help your project even more than why are we focusing so much on the code? I see that a lot. Like, uh, like I just, you know, angry people on the internet are always going to exist. But there was this one person who is an open source maintainer got really angry at me. And they were like, how insulting that you think I can't like make money and stuff. And it's kind of like be, be what was around their anger was the assumption that like business skills were easy or that like projects automatically made money if they were good and not realizing. And another maintainer mentioned this to me. They were like, well, I could just build this project in a weekend. So clearly it's not that valuable. And they were like laughing at a startup that started a company over a product that was built in a weekend. And so I was like, which I get it. Like, I'm not saying that they're bad for thinking that, but I'm just saying that like, you can build a product in a weekend and then take over a year of intense work to sell it like business skills. And I, it also reminds me of a conversation I had with my business partner where I was like, oh, we recently landed this big deal and I was, it's like going to impact a lot of people, our work. And I was kind of lamenting that I didn't build that a lot of that product that I focused a lot on business. My business partner was like, if you didn't focus on business, it wouldn't be used in this way at all. So if you if what you care about mm. is having a big impact on the world, the business skills arguably did that just as much as the code. Like people don't just use things because they're out there, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it reminds me of this, the whole like, if you build it, they will come or like, just the purely technical, like they see that it's better and it just means that money's going to show up. Or, and, and I think we use this phrase like worse is better a lot where like a lot of technologies might be better and then they failed, I guess, because they didn't focus on the business side or they that wasn't as much of an emphasis. And I kind of feel the same way um, with Babel. It's like <laughs> the same exact thing. I feel like guilty all the time or I'll tell my maintainers like, I wish I was doing more code or whatever because I feel bad and I'm focusing on all this other stuff. Um, but then I guess slowly realizing it's still hard 
to like actually um it's like mentally i think it's right but then like i don't know maybe emotionally i'm still like oh i still want to go back to what i'm used to um and knowing that all this other work i did is the only reason why i can even i guess sustain myself now um if i didn't go out and talk to people I can't expect companies to just randomly show up and give us money. But it's interesting to view business as more than just a way to make money. Like in in the process of doing business, you're getting to know your users. You're like seeing how it's being integrated. You're um you're able to do better support. You're like you're um like in the process of doing business, you kind of figure out what you need to be building and what's valuable to people and how people use it. Um, so that's a thought too, that it's not like, it's not just about making money. You can actually make a better product by doing more business work too. Yeah. I like that. Like, or even, even just like trying to not separate them so much where it's like, Oh, it's business. And this is like code or, or anything like that. It's like that. They both help each other. Um, and you're right. Like, the quality of feedback or innovation we can get from talking to people on Twitter or GitHub issues is very low compared to meeting someone in person and talking with them and finding out their issues. And, you know, maybe it's the in-person part versus like online communication. But um, I definitely found that, that, I mean, it, it just helps me realize like they're like they're people too. Cause I think, um, you don't remember like who's who are you actually talking to online? They don't think it's like both of us. It's like people don't see maintainers as people because there's just like some black box. And in the same way, it's hard for us to do the same thing. It kind of makes me think of a thing that I, I mention a lot, which is that people new to business tend to put like their business efforts into one of two categories. They either like go about their normal lives and like just like. Like they, they essentially do business unintentionally all the time. They make friends with people. They talk to users. They like, they, you know, fix up issues. They're like always interacting with people, which is related to business. Or they go into like cold money making mode where they are like doing a bunch of hard sells and getting aggressive and like seeing it as just about money. But the right way to do business mm-hmm. is like in the middle of those, like, you know, when you talk to your users, mention that like, you do need to be financially supported and how they can help you out. Like it reminds me of something my therapist said where she was saying that like, you should never make someone into a perpetrator. You should never make someone into someone like who has this image of like wanting to hurt you. Like, and in this case, it's painting someone as like, you don't want to help me financially. And it's like, no, like, Mm. like assume people would like to, but it's your, it's your responsibility to communicate how, what those avenues are and make sure those are good avenues for you. Yeah. I guess the assumption, like when you're doing the cold selling thing, you're like, I like it kind of, I don't know. It just feels like it ruins the whole thing where it's like, you're so focused on the money that you just see this person as a way to get money. And the other side, it's like, oh, they could have. If it's just like a friend, you're not seeing as someone that could actually help you either. So it's like, yeah, I think it's good to, yeah, right, what you said, have a balance for that. Yeah, your friend wants to help you financially. And the person mm-hmm. who you might be viewing as just giving you money is a person too. 
and mm-hmm. they they might believe exactly. in, they might be believing in the mission too and they might be like highly motivated by that and not just by money um so yeah it's it's really important to strike a balance like it's so it's so funny because i i recently did this negotiation that was just it was just like a perfect example of this it's like so we entered in via the programmer and the programmer was like, obviously your tech is valuable. I want to use it. And so we gave them an evaluation. This is for proprietary software, but you can draw parallels. And the programmer was like taking the role of a business person. Like I could tell he was like trying it on and like, you know, <laughs> he was like, and it was very cold. And once we got to the actual business person, he was like the most friendly guy in the world. <laughs> and <it> was, <laughs> <laughs> and this is a guy with like decades of business experience and it's like okay like clearly like this business person who specializes in this knows that being friendly and warm and human is like a better mm. way to do business it's like you like have like this on off switch like okay i'm in like selling mode <laughs> <laughs> it's like no <laughs> Like he started off telling me about his daughter and like what she's doing. And then he was telling Mm. me like he really loves like our mission. And like it was just very human, you know? I think it helps to like, because it gives you like the freedom to just be more creative about how you want to meet people and improve the project, right? For sure. Like, you know, I I own this uh, or I run this community community. it doesn't really have a theme, but it's kind of just like a general place to talk to people and network. And recently, someone came in there with like a cold pitch, like their icon was like the logo of a company and they like just went right into selling their product. And the painful part about that to me was their product was actually relevant to the people in the community. But everyone had a really mm. negative response to that because they completely neglected the human element to selling. Right. There's like the norm of there's a chat room and people are talking and then you randomly like that happens in our Slack for Babel, where it's like the point of the Slack is to help people with their questions or maybe if they want to contribute. And then randomly they're like, hey, do you want to buy this thing? It's like, how does that have anything to do with what we're saying. And the members were like, you should kick them out. They're like violating the rules. And I'm like, actually, Mm. you all are pitching all the time. Like people are like, oh, can you review my resume? Like, oh, here's what I'm up to later. Here's a blog post I wrote. But they're just not pitching in such a cold way. So I was telling them it's, it's, it's okay to pitch here. Like this is a space where people pitch all the time, but maybe the cold approach isn't effective here. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I guess it's like what you said, like, we're always pitching ourselves. Everything we do is, in a, I guess, in a sense, marketing, especially like on social media. Even so, I think if if we realize that, then we don't have to go into this like mode of like cold selling because you know writing something on your like Twitter, um, whatever it is, it's it's influencing what people think about you and the product. Exactly, exactly. It really is, and it's like. When you think about like, do you ever describe what your product does to someone? Do you ever describe like how they can financially help you? Like, okay, so you're already doing those things. Then why not put effort into making those pitches uh, better? One interesting thing that I've actually been learning lately is that if you are confident, the perceived values and the prices that you can charge change. This is something that I'm actively learning. 
Because for many years, I would approach a lot of price negotiations with like, what do you think about this? And this applies to open source because you're pricing whenever you're whenever you're accepting money, you're pricing. It's like whether it be Patreon or whether it be a logo on your page or services or support or whatever you're pricing. And so I basically like for many years, I would set, I would figure out what a good price was by like asking them a lot of questions and like asking them what they thought of prices and, and like haggling and, and techniques like that. And in B2B, so when you're selling to businesses, the price psychology is the right price if they agree to it and they give you the money, but they're complaining about it. And that's unique to B2B. Um, and in B2B, one of the reasoning for that price psychology is that it's not their money and it's not like a necessary product. And so the complaints are more around like navigating the corporate bureaucracy, which is just, it's just going to be there. Like, it's not like, it's hard to describe to people who aren't used to it, but it's like, that is the right price when selling to businesses. They're complaining about the price, not you, but the price and their pain. Anyway, I would find that price through asking questions. Lately, because I've become more confident that that price is right, I've just been saying the price. Like, here it is. This is our price. I'm going to walk. And I also have more financial security now. So I'm like, I'm going to walk if you can't pay this. I have noticed and I've experimented with raising that, raising that to points where they would not pay me if I was posing it to a question and they still pay. So it's weird how like confidence really changes perceived value sometimes drastically. Right. Like saying it as a question versus just like the statement, like, oh, this is how much it is. Yeah. And it's, it's more than just like, oh, so you're open to haggling. It's like, oh, if you're not even sure, you must not have much business experience. Like, wow, like your product must not be that good. Like there's, there's a whole like complicated psychology to it that I'm currently figuring out. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like if you have this ability, then why even sell yourself short, I suppose. But maybe there's like the, when you're talking about confidence, it is like this sort of attitude of, you know, I would say, I think people use the word like scarcity versus abundance and showing that you have a lot means that you can, even if you don't, I guess, uh, makes it easier to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. Another recent challenge I've been running into with business is that money means very different things, um, not only between corporations and individuals, but also between like different kinds of corporations in the same way that like, um, you know, my grocery budget used to be like $25 a week. And like, I now spend like more than that on a takeout meal. And my old self would be like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Mm. But to me, that's like normal now. And it's like, so our, our, our our, cha- our uh, perceptions of money can change, but in corporations, it's like that, like times a, like a million. Like corporations really view money in different ways. Um, like I I was talking about um, acquisitions with someone who's very familiar with this one particular co- corporation, and she was like, "Oh yeah, an acquisition worth less than ten million is like you're a piece of crap company." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> actually, 
actually, I will take that money. <laughs> you can call me a piece of crap if you want. Um, <laughs> and it's like, and, and, and the, the bar of like where you lose respect and what money means and what money communicates is so different between companies and also is influenced by perceived value. So it's this crazy complex equation of like what they perceive your value to be and what they, um, what they view money as and what influences perceived value and all this like complex calculations to determine what price you should charge. It's crazy. Like it's why mathematics for economics is a mess sometimes is because human nature is really complex more than machines are. Yeah. It's almost like when you have the amount of money that it's just like that amount of money changes how you like see what you can do in the future. Like, when I, um, I was thinking about like when I decided to quit and I could have waited a long time for me to like, I guess, quote unquote, have enough to make or to, to quit later, but I decided to just do it now. Um, or at the time, uh, because I don't know, I guess I thought that it was, it wasn't going to like simply waiting wasn't going to change anything and maybe making the decision would kind of forced me to think a little bit differently and then when we had no money it's like when you have a small amount of money you're it's like weird if you're arguing over like how we should spend it it's like oh we're gonna buy some stickers for people or t-shirts it's like what are we doing and then when you get enough to pay someone it's like that fundamentally changes like what you would want to do with it later like oh we can pay someone a salary or we can spend money to you know go to a different conference like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Yeah, it's really interesting. One thing I've been really aware of as we've gotten more financial success is thinking like, I don't ever want my perception of money to be warped like it is. Like when I negotiate, I kind of have to like go into a different brain. Like, okay, I have to like adopt the mindset toward money that they have. (laughs) But, um, But for me, for my personal finances, I've been really aware of how I can even now live off of a lot less than I've like considered normal and considered the bare minimum and like not losing too much perspective is really important to me on a personal level, which is kind of a different topic. But like, I'm, I'm highly aware of that as I learn about like this whole warped view of money that people have. Um, we can go into it. Uh, I feel like I mentioned this in the other podcast I did with Nadia about money. I have this fear too of like, thinking about money obviously will change your perception of it. And I don't want it to go in a certain direction. Right. Um, and maybe that's the fear a lot of people have of like, I mean, it's weird. Like you make a lot of money and then suddenly it, it makes me feel like I care about that only. Right. And that wasn't, my goal isn't money, right. It's something else, uh, but that helps make it happen. And for me, I think what I've experienced in my life is, because I used to be very poor and live off very little and um, for, for years. And what I have seen is that it's not that I start to only value money for me. It's that I start the bar for how much I need and my perception of what it can give me change over time. Like I, I had this big wake up call in San Francisco where I was spending $4,000 a month on rent. And, um, I was making a good money, but it didn't feel like it because of how high all the costs were there. And 
But at the time, I knew this. Like, I knew that that wasn't logical. I knew I was lighting dollar bills on fire. But I had this whole, like, reasoning built up of, like, no, I need to do this. Like, I need to be here. I need to be in the city. Like, I had this, like, it, it was almost – I've talked to other people who, um, who like, grew up poor or had to be poor for a long time where they, they like, take the survival mindset – even when they're now making money and like, it, it's, they like never lose that survival mindset. And that can make you really out of touch if you're not careful. Yeah. I guess there's like both extremes. I feel like that too, in a, in I guess a different way where it's like, um, when you do have money and you don't want to spend it at all. And I feel like I have to, it's like weird to learn to want to spend money where before I would just spend all my time. It's like, if I have the money, I should, spend it so I don't have to like um, learn all these other skills, right? Like offsetting or outsourcing, I guess. Yeah. And then when you spend it, you have to be real careful, especially if you're spending it and giving it to other people, you have to be real careful that you don't grow cold or unethical when you do that. I cannot tell you how painful it's been to watch because I don't have any employees. It's just me and my business partner and like, contractors who work with us who run their own businesses so that the contractors are different because they have a lot more leverage than an employee does like they literally like we're small fry clients to them so they (laughs) they feel comfortable telling us to shut up and pay more and stuff you know um it's like it's different when you're hiring someone who doesn't have that much power um and a lot of people fall into like oh, this is just the way it is, or this is just market rate, or I'm being fair. And you have to kind of realize that like hiring, this is kind of a controversial statement, but I do believe that hiring anyone at a lower rate than an equal partner and an equal share of all the money you're making is injustice. And that's why workers' rights will always be in conflict with business owners and you gotta like recognize that that you essentially are never treating people fairly unless they're truly equal partners. So it's like how you kind of you you need to like have that humility, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess I feel the same way. Where it's like when we have enough money, should I? I, don't, I probably shouldn't ask other people to be like, "Hey, do you want to join me in doing this full time open source thing?" Because there's that risk where it's like it's probably not going to work out. Um, and I don't know if I want other people to go through that if they don't want to, right? Well, that's where analyzing the business aspect can be helpful because that's a common thing in startups as well. Even though startups are known for making like more consistent money than open source projects, it's still this, like what you just said comes up a lot because the fact is business is hard and a lot of startups fail. So it's like, should I encourage people to do a startup even though they might fail And I think that's where like being realistic about that chance of failure, but also breaking down what worked for you. So it's not just like considered all luck so that you equip them with some tools for success. I guess, yeah, we don't know what that is yet, but I guess that's the point of this podcast. (laughs) That's the point is like breaking it down and being like, you know, people didn't just, even the people who don't know why they made a lot of money, they didn't make it out out of 100% luck. Um, They probably like, 
they probably made it off of some luck, but it wasn't 100%. So how can we learn for the parts that aren't just luck? You know, the, the discussion on money actually reminds me of a conversation we had a while ago. Of I think I mentioned, like, um, I think it was the idea that, you know, people, when they want to give back, you can give you can like give, I guess, to charity, that kind of thing now, or you can, you're like, oh, I need to use my money to make a lot of money and then give it all later. And I guess my fear was like, if I don't, um, I guess, exercise that ability now that I might forget to do it later. I have been thinking about that a lot since we talked about it. And I've been kind of brainstorming with other people about that same idea. I gathered like a few interesting thoughts on that. One guy told me about a science fiction story where you enter this pyramid and it's really cool. Like you want to explore the pyramid. It's awesome. Like you're so excited. You're this adventurer. But to get through the door, you need to solve this math puzzle. You solve it, you go through the next one and there's like an even harder math puzzle and you start to get punished if you don't solve it right. And so you start to like really be motivated to solve it because now you're trapped in the pyramid and this is your only way to get out. And the science fiction story goes that eventually the humans that went into these pyramids and started solving these puzzles, by the time they were able to exit the pyramid, they had turned into mutants who were specialized in solving math puzzles and had lost some of their humanity. I think about that when you say stuff like that because there's first of all the matter that you can give back now and there's also the matter that you might never be able to reach that magical point where you're comfortable to give back right but there's also the matter of do you want to turn into a mutant while you wait and you might change so much that you don't want to give back in the way that you used to yeah i think that story is a great depiction of that fear and i don't think it's a fear that's unfounded at all because We change all the time and especially by, you know, the environment and in ways that we don't even imagine, especially with technology. Right. And I think um, I think admitting that um, or I guess even admitting we're as not as good as we think um, and we could potentially get there if we don't do anything um, is is something to be um, cognizant of. I think Um, that I'm seeing this a lot in like there's a discussion in in giving back that's like, be careful that you don't put the people you're serving, the people you're giving back to in like another category from your friends. There was kind of the idea that it's dangerous to like be giving back and volunteering but the people you're volunteering to are not, do not look like the people who are your equal friends and like how that can change someone. And you start to see these people like in a different category than you. And that's really dangerous. And that influences how much you can give back. And I think part of that is like your friend group or the people you consider equals like really influence the way you think about the world. And we want to think that's not true, but I really think it is. Yeah. It's almost like it might be more of a a pity thing versus like, I'm the same as you. I'm just in a different situation at the moment. Yeah. And also losing touch with like what the real issues are. And because you can't have those equal conversations, like power dynamics are at play, like all kinds of stuff. 
I, I saw that firsthand the other the other month. I was at this networking event and it was like mentoring themed, right? So people had badges where the, some people wore a badge that says they were the mentor and other people wore a badge saying they were the mentee. It's like a weird psychological experiment. <laughs> so like I, for instance, got to war, wear a mentor badge. And we were all labeled. And this one woman, she was being talked down to as if she was like, very new and very inexperienced. Like she needed advice on like basic job hunting skills and stuff like that. And so I was kind of listening to this conversation, but she looked older. So I was like, this is not matching up. And I talked to her and she has like a PhD in biology and was like a successful biologist for many years. And uh, she just like wants to get into code. Like, that's it. (laughs) And so I was like, and that's like a perfect example of some, and I believe the person who was talking to her, like all of their friends were programmers and they just think like, oh, like they like don't even think about like all the valuable skills that she learned as a biologist and stuff. It was really warped. I guess we have a tendency to do that, especially in tech. Like we are going to save everyone and like, we're so smart kind of thing. (laughs) It's like, eh. She probably knows more than you do, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess it just goes back to humility. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because like, you can use that knowledge to help yourself in business. Like if you realize that someone's perception of money is really warped, like you can kind of realize that and put yourself in their shoes just briefly for that negotiation and think about and just realize that money is worth different things to different people and influences Mm. the respect like for instance if like I went back to the me a decade ago when I didn't have a lot of money and showed them um trying to think of a good example like a $50 backpack um I might have been like Mm. oh that's a good investment but now and now that I'm making more money I look at the $50 backpack and I'm like "Ah, okay that's like a mid-range backpack you know, so it's like like it, it does influence our perception of how much things are worth as well. Right. And I, yeah, like shaped by all the people around us because they, if they all buy $50 backpacks, then we'll think it's normal. Yeah, exactly. Or they all acquire startups for $10 million, so they think it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Or they're used to uh, spending $10,000 putting a logo on a website or spending $1,000. One of these days, I want to do a podcast like this where I name numbers. The reason why I'm so hesitant to like name real life examples is because it like it, it really changes based on industry, based on what you do, based on how you sell it. So I want like people to do the work of like, talking to people one-on-one who are in similar industries or selling similar things and like get those numbers for themselves. Yeah, that would be pretty interesting. I don't know if a lot of podcasts that talk about money that specifically. It's Well, it's because it's tough. Like I could tell you a price and maybe that price will never be, or maybe that price would be interpreted as low respect in your niche. Like I don't want to, you like what the price and it's because of that complicated price psychology we were talking about before right even like the you said the internal thing where it's like we i was i can think for a company it's like it's normal for them to spend a lot of money on like workshops for people or something but then with open source there's no 
history of it. So then they're like, I don't even know where to start or it's worth nothing, I guess, because of history. And it's tricky because like some companies might compare it to like the budget they have for contractors. Some people, some companies might compare it to the budget they have for marketing. Like I, I have, I have experienced this with selling a product. We sell image compression um, and we sell one of the industries we sell to is the game industry, but the game industry isn't really used to buying image compression. They, they, like, there aren't a lot of other proprietary products that sell to them. So what they do is they try to put us in another bucket. They sell, oh, okay, you're like lossless compression. We buy a lossless compression codec. So you must be similar pricing to them. Like that happens all the time. And I have to be wary of that when I'm selling to kind of direct them to what bucket to compare me to. Hmm. And then you have to know what those buckets are, I guess. So when you're selling, like, do you want to be compared to like an advertising client that like puts logos on things? Do you want to be compared to a a programmer they hire as a contractor? Like, what do you want to be compared to and what do they spend money on now? It can kind of help give you a jumping off point. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I I have talked to a lot of people and they, they would say something like they don't have budget in the engineering uh, section, but it's like, oh, for marketing, it makes sense, and they're willing to spend money there. Exactly. Sometimes the marketing budget is bigger than the engineering budget. So often, yeah, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Or like just learning like the subsets of engineering budgets. For instance, I did a sale to a large company, and we were always going to be in an engineering budget. Like our particular product will never be in a marketing budget. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but there are different, um, sections of engineering and some, uh, engineering departments get more money for middleware than others. So even just within engineering, navigating that and figuring out who can, who has more budget for you. Yeah. That makes me think about like, it's almost for each company, there's like a person that I know in there that can be like the person that represents you and they kind of can help you figure out, oh, this works for this department or anything like that exactly and sometimes that's multiple people it's like but like indeed like yeah we might have talked about it last time in sales it's called like the champion like the champion is someone who is genuinely excited about you and like is like your internal advocate in the company and they can help you navigate it the trouble is if your champion's an engineer they probably don't know that information and they the worst part is they might think they know it but it's better to get that straight from a like someone who actually sees budgets and stuff I run into that a lot when selling my product, like the example I gave before, like an engineer will basically act like they know the budget or an engineering manager. And it's like, well, you might get some visibility, especially if you're a manager, but like at the end of the day, you don't approve vendor contracts in a lot, a lot of companies, they, they wouldn't. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's not, <laughs> I have to like treat that very delicately and be like, you know what I respect. Oh, I, I see, respect yeah. that. I respect <laughs> that you think you have this power, but can I just talk to the business person? <laughs> I haven't had too much success with that either. I guess it's just like I happen to know people and I've it's almost like I've been bad at like doing cold email type things. Or I, I guess I realized I until recently I had a fear of doing that for some reason. I don't know why, but now I'm more willing to, to just 
see what happens. Yeah, and I still don't do a lot of cold email, but like in the case I was mentioning, I would just have to educate them on the process. Like, can you introduce me to this person? Like kind of not cold, but like making sure I'm getting the right intros to the right people. Yeah, I guess in my situation, it's a little bit easier that I guess the people that I'm talking to, they might already follow me on Twitter, or at least they are chatting in some way because of how we're used. For sure. It reminds me of like advice given to people looking for jobs on Twitter is they'll often post like a job tweet, like, hey, I'm looking for work. And some people might respond with like, oh, that's cool. Tell me a little more about these projects. And they don't realize that though, if they like keep up com- conversations with like anyone who replies to the tweet and build those relationships, that could turn into a job. Sometimes people will only respond to someone if they like directly have a job for them right now. And then bringing up Twitter, I, it's, I guess I'm still figuring out what to to do with that. It's, it's funny, like, Obviously, I can do whatever I want, but it's, I mean, that goes back to the whole feeling bad about posting things. But then, and then going back to and thinking, okay, Ernie, we're all doing marketing no matter if I don't want to. Um, so I should be a little, I should not just be more intentional, but just like realize I'm doing it anyway. And also realize that people want to help you. Like, it's not like you're trying to force people to do something they don't want to do. They want help. Yeah, that makes me feel really good. <laughs> when I, I, I just have this feeling, I was like, wow, these people actually care a lot about the work that we're working in. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. I think there is a point where it can be done badly. I think it can be done badly if you're like never promoting anyone else but yourself. Like, even if people want to help you, if you're in a position of power, you're kind of obligated, in my opinion, to try to help others as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it can also be done badly if you're never, ever forming, like, human relationships with people. If it's all just, like, here's how to give me money and there's no human element to it of, like, gratitude and kindness and asking how they're doing and stuff like that. I mean, I guess that just has to do with giving, like, when people help me, I just have a natural desire to want to help them anyway. So Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, and that's good. And like, as long as you don't become like that kind of sales account, that's just like, here's how to give me money. Here's how to give me money. And like never interacting with people, never helping other people out. Then I think it's, it's fine. Like as humans, we naturally want to help each other. But Mm-hmm. Um, sales and marketing is just telling people how they can do that for you. And one thing that's like, I can't remember if we talked about it, this in the last one. It's like the idea that like, there was a story where someone, an open source maintainer, like fixed someone's bug. And the person was like, oh my God, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so thankful you fixed this bug for me. How can I help? And the person was like, oh, I have a Patreon. And so the person donated mm-hmm. like $20 a month for a few months. And in, in the person's eyes, they were like, I thanked you appropriately. You told me how to thank you, the Patreon, and I donated some money. In fact, I donated more than I usually donate. And I've sufficiently thanked you. And the person ended up feeling like violated by that. They were like, oh my God, you're only paying me 60 bucks for fixing this bug for you. What an insult. But they never communicated that. Like it's important to communicate how people can help you. Yeah, I think that's a great like... Um, way of putting that where it's like instead of I, I'm kind of desperate I need money you say it in terms of 
you know, this is how you can help me instead of I need help, right? Well, exactly. And it's also like there, there, whenever you set a boundary, you're going to be disappointing some people. Like for instance, you know, um, the person might've had this set perception of $20 is an appropriate amount to help you. They might've had that. So if you say like, no, this bug is worth like $2,000. If you want to thank me, you will have to donate at least $2,000 and then I'll be happy. The person might be disappointed, but at the end of the day, you're actually, you're going to be holding resentment either way. You're going to be angry at them for only donating $60. So it's good to be honest about what real, like what you'll genuinely appreciate. And that kind of frees you up to be more loving and more compassionate because then when people do meet that, there's no resentment. There's like, you're genuinely appreciative right and i guess that gets into the whole like your actual value versus just doing it for free because if like i guess even paying someone like a tip and then not doing what people expect is like an insult and you'd rather just do it for free that's that's common thing is like yeah that's that's it's it's, it's price psychology i don't quite understand super well yet because i tend to negotiate in a higher numbers with like corporations, Mm. but that's definitely a thing where it's important that you don't, I was talking to this business person who, um, he commonly gives a lot of advice on social media and stuff. Right. And he said that he runs into this thing where people often want to tip him. And he was saying like, when he gives advice for free, there's kind of this understanding that like it's volunteer work. And when someone tips him, there's like an understanding that they're kind of like compensating him for that. And he says he never wants to make people feel like $5 is adequate compensation for the kind of advice he gives. So he either gives it for free or he gives it for a high price um, because he doesn't, because it's just messed up. Like people start to disrespect him and start to treat him like his advice is worth $5. Like they tip him $5 and they're like, I want more advice. And he's like, I don't have time now. So they hand him another $5 and they're like, now you have time. Like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Like even if they didn't think that at at first, it sends, it's like a signal to yourself that, yeah, that's what they're Yeah, you, it's it's weird. Like human psychology is a very weird thing. And then open source as a whole, I think most people don't expect to pay anything. So expecting to pay anything now is we're trying to change that whole cultural expectation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening. Check out the website, maintainersanonymous.com, for transcripts of each episode. If you have any feedback, topic ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pad. 